Hey, everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, past, present, and emerging. Let's go. Hello and welcome to The Familiar Strange, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia Pacific and College of Arts and Social Sciences, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association and coming to you from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. I am your familiar stranger today, Ian Pollock, together with my fellow familiar strangers, Julia Brown. Hello. Simon Theobald. Hello. And Jody Lee Trembath. Hello. And it would appear that we're on track to have over 20,000 downloads of the podcast by the time this one comes to air. I want to thank everybody who's listening. We thank everybody. Woo! Thank you. So let's get started. Jody, what are you thinking about this week? I have been thinking about misogyny. So I always thought that the terms misogyny and sexism could be used interchangeably, but I'm reading this new book. It's called Down Girl, The Logic of Misogyny. It's by an Australian philosopher, Kate Mann. And in it, she talks about how it's actually more productive to think about misogyny as something that a person does. Mann calls it like the law enforcement branch of the patriarchy. And the patriarchy, we can think of that more like this overriding social structure that basically says this is a man's world. Now, sexism is an ideology that supports that social structure by saying that men are inherently and naturally superior to women. You don't have to hate women to feel that. And both men and women can feel that. And then misogyny, on the other hand, is the ways that people, often men, but not always, try to uphold and enforce those patriarchal structures, particularly by finding persuasive ways to prevent those structures from being circumvented, especially by women. So that might involve degrading them, belittling them, or sexualizing them, or infantilizing them, whatever it takes to ensure that they don't step out of line. So... I find this really persuasive that this would be a more productive way to tackle misogyny in society, partly because it's just not so personal. It sort of says, hey, your behaviour right now is not okay, but that's something that you can choose to change rather than saying you're a bad person and there's no place for someone like you in this new world that we're trying to create. I feel like that could reframe the debate, which I think could be good for getting more men on board as feminist allies if they don't feel like they're always being framed as the bad guys. But I don't know. I mean, is that is that a cop-out? Are we letting actual misogynists off the hook with that kind of definition? What do you guys think? There seems to be a similarity to the way we could think about race and being a racist, right? Mm. As either you are a racist, it's a label you carry on your person, and you could be an irredeemable racist. Or racism could be something that you perpetrate in your everyday actions, however you regard yourself, like, I'm no racist, but, mm -hmm. which of course is the way people preface all kinds of terribly racist comments, mm. to say, I'm no misogynist, but a woman has no business piloting an airplane. Mm. There seems to be an analog there. Yeah, she also talks about intersectionality and how these kinds of things are never just about, or very rarely just about gender. Well, if you take racism, for instance, that creates biases based on values that may or may not be in your conscious awareness. So in this case, if you're talking about the patriarchal culture, you've adopted those values and you act in a certain way. The way you act is a confirmation of those values. So it's like a confirmation bias. 
Simon, thoughts? Yes, it seems like a good idea. But at the same time, do we want to let off let real misogynists of the hawk? Do you think this does that by saying that this is a behavior, not a type of person? I don't know. I always get it's good to let people know that what they're doing is not good. And it's equally good to let people who really are bigoted not get away with their beliefs. Whether that means we have to kind of like punish them as individuals, as persons, I don't I don't know. But what does that look like? If our goal is behaviour change, if we want bigots to stop being bigots, racists to stop being racists, misogynists to stop being misogynists, is the approach to bash them over the head with that and say there's no place for you? Yes, yes, absolutely. Metaphorically, we are not advocating violence here at The Familiar Strange. However, yeah, metaphorically, do we castigate them? Or do we try and find ways in sideways, even though that seems unfair? Well, the ideology of equality is also not neutral, right? I mean, it requires some kind of power to enforce it in the same way that something like patriarchy or racism or these other kind of violent ideologies of domination require some kind of system of enforcement. I mean, equality requires that as well from people who are going to try and seize power or oppress people in various ways. That's something that we do need to acknowledge. There's an ideology at work on both sides here. I'm not going to say that they're morally equal. No, but that's an interesting point. Like, what would it be called if someone was enforcing equality? Communism. In <laughs> Would it? <laughs> Wouldn't it? I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, that's an interesting idea that we're in. Well, I think that's all that we have time for on this topic. Let's move on. Simon, tell us, what are you thinking about this week? I am thinking about something today. I am thinking about the prime ministerial leadership of Australia. For those of you who are listening overseas, Australia is a bastion of instability at the moment and has been roughly for the last 10 years. We've had about seven prime ministers in the last 10 years. But it got me thinking about the fact that today, the 23rd of August, the Liberal Party is attempting, as far as we can tell, to disembowel itself, I <laughs> say, for want of a better term. And I was trying to think, how can I think about this anthropologically? What's, what's the kind of anthropological spin on that? And what really struck me was how anthropology has a problem with the notion of the rational agent. It's a kind of economic notion, but effectively that there's a rational agent who always acts in their best self-interest. And I think, if anything, at the moment, what we're seeing is the Liberal Party acting against its own best interests by potentially choosing someone who is even less popular than the leader they currently have. So I'm wondering, what are the anthropological motivations behind the current disaster that is taking place in our fair capital where we are recording this podcast? For me, it's a, it's a case of fear and ideology over good sense. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head with the term ideology, again, following on from the previous segment. But this seems to be part and parcel with something that's sweeping conservative movements across the democratic world towards ideological purity and away from the kind of big tent idea of what a political party can be, right? The idea that, that a nation should have disparate elements and there should be contestation and disorder between them is inherently not a conservative idea. There are people who definitely prefer to embrace some sort of order over any kind of disorder and contestation, which of course is what democracy is all about. And to think that they could form a smaller, harder, purer core of a party and still seize and, and hold power with that, that that would be the real purpose of politics for them. It sounds like fascism. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> it sounds a lot like fascism, actually. Do you think that's what's going on? I do. Uh, I do and I, too. And I don't think it's I don't think Australia is alone in that. The same thing's happening in the United States. 
and in, in Western Europe as these kind of far-right parties lurch into more powerful positions, not on the basis of forging a broad consensus across a broad swath of different interest groups that make up the nation, but an idea of a nation that is ideologically unified around their particular set of ideas. So they say that Australians are naturally, the, the, the Australian character is consensus-based and... Uh, this is where we get anthropological, right? Yeah. The Australian character, the character of the nation, the imagined community, right? That it should have a way of being. I mean, they talk about this kind of thing in America all the time. What it means to be an American, to be enterprising, to be self-reliant. These are deeply ingrained myths that we all get pounded into us about what it means to be an American. To me, it's partly that idea of ideology. But it's, it's almost like that ideology is substanceless. The Liberal Party, for example, have these conservative notions, and Peter Dutton specifically, who is one of the people who is vying to be the next prime minister, has these very clearly strong conservative abhorrent views, in my opinion. But the thing that he said when he was talking about becoming prime minister was that his number one priority would be ensuring that the Labor government didn't win the next election. His key goal is nothing to do with his ideologies, except that his ideologies stand up like this facade that he gets to stand behind that have nothing to do with what he actually wants, which is power. Power for power's sake. That's the ideology. Right. And is it a rationality? Like anthropology grapples with this idea of the rational man, so like homo economicus, but really we spend most of our time critiquing why that doesn't actually Well, yeah, that's what that's what I mean. Play out. Like, yes. Yeah. So how do you think it's still rationalized? Like, I don't what, think it is rationalized. There's there's a party, right? Statistically whose best chance of going and winning the next election would be to keep Malcolm Turnbull in office. But right now they are literally jettisoning themselves into the sun in, in the most kind of spectacular way possible. To me, that flies against the notion that humans are in any way rational at all. Sorry, that's all we have time for on that segment. we got to move on. Julia, tell us, what are you thinking about this week? I've been thinking about the ontological turn in anthropology. Basically, ontology is that underlying nature of reality, as opposed to epistemology, which is how we know things. Now, the ontological turn um, has sparked a lot of debate in anthropology, And it's premised on this idea that cultural relativism, which is a lot of what anthropology is about, isn't enough, that it's not relativist enough, that what constitutes the world and nature is also disputable, not just the viewpoints about the world or nature. So with this comes more openness to difference and quite revolutionary kinds of thinking. People think about accommodating differences in ontologies by engaging with the people that we study in an interpretation process. You know, in order to reconstruct ontologies, we have to engage our participants in that process. And the thing is, I was under the impression, perhaps naively, that all anthropologists were doing this. And so my question to you guys is, how much do you think most anthropologists or how much do you guys even co-construct knowledge with your participants? So 
there were some really basic ontological differences, which is to say really basic differences in the ways that we viewed the fundamental nature of the world between me and the people that I was studying with in Indonesia. One of those things is a belief in the existence of God. If you believe in the existence of God, which I do not personally, but my informants all did, they were Catholics and also involved in a kind of ancestor worship, local traditional religion. If you believe in the existence of God and that God permeates the world, there's no phenomenon and there's no cause and effect not related to that fact. That difference in worldview is what we would normally construct as culture. To the extent that I certainly wanted to understand that point of view, what it would take to embrace their ontological view of the world and share that belief and to interpret the world in that way, I don't know if that's a leap that I could choose to make even. But you must accept the possibility of it in order to respect their position, right? Well, this is the issue. So I think theorists that are working with this ontological turn idea would say that the idea that you're even describing it as just a belief is problematic. So my, I think maybe I've been using ontology wrong all this time, um, <laughs> but I always thought that my ontology was that I can't possibly know, so therefore anything is possible. When I was on fieldwork, I had a very interesting conversation with a hairdresser who explained to me that we were on the brink of interstellar war and there were grey beings that lived amongst us and explained the whole theory of lizard people and believed it very, very deeply. And because I showed interest, told me a lot about it. And because I believe that anything's possible, I, I was happy to go along with that as he was doing it. But it would be a lot more difficult if you had a strong belief that you knew what was what and that your understanding of the world was correct. So is that what you're saying, that you don't believe in God and you know you're right about that? I guess I would I would have to say maybe it's just there's an ideology at work here, which is harder to step outside than ideas about culture and belief. An ideology of epistemology, an, ide an ideology of ways of knowing in which some ways of knowing are more legitimate and more correct than others. And that is something that is, it is a much bigger challenge. Like you said, Julia, it's more problematic than simply talking about culture and belief, isn't it? So I always liked your example, Simon, of the conversations that you had with your informants about what you needed to agree on before you could have a debate. My informant who told me this probably no longer adheres to that belief. He has had a, a bit of a sea change in his own beliefs. But at the time, he told me that there were sort of basic fundamentals that you had to believe in in order to have an argument. Some of these were like, for instance, the existence of God, the belief that God sends prophets. Your informants are Muslim. Yes. And they put forward this vision of minimal categories, I guess, to have a debate. And I always found that relatively difficult because for me, the assumption that one automatically has to believe in God, has to believe in prophets, etc., constitute things that are profoundly cultural, things that don't exist in the, um, the world that exists independently of our kind of cultural analysis thereof. So you think there is a world that exists independent of our cultural lens? Because the yeah, ontologist so would argue that... Yeah, ontological terms says that there's not. I, I, I mean... Do I tell you what I personally believe or what I should believe disciplinarily? <laughs> um, what should we believe disciplinarily? Yeah, maybe we're doing it wrong. <laughs> um, personally, I think there probably is a world out there. And I think that humans refract that world through their cultural understandings. If we don't share some planet upon which we all sit and upon which we're all struggling to constantly interpret. I mean, I'm, I totally believe, for instance, that none of us see 100% clearly. We all see through the lens of our culture. But to say that we have to take seriously, deeply and meaningfully into our own person, these possibilities, I think like Ian, I would struggle to 
feel that was a choice that I could make. But do you feel that when you're constructing knowledge about your participants, it is with their participation? Yeah, I, w- I am very concerned about making knowledge that I do not think adheres to Iranians' understanding of their own lives. Yeah, so I, th- I think that you are ensuring that you're co-constructing knowledge as the ontologists would want you to do, I think. Or the people against, I don't know, I'm confused. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I think This I is think... why I avoid this subject. Yeah. But ontology's slippery. It seems like an area of study that leaves you with no place to stand. It's Any sleeping. place you stand is a particular ontology. It wouldn't be possible to step outside of all ontologies in order to look at ontologies. No. If people are interested, though, I would recommend Paige West's recent book on development in Papua New Guinea, where she talks about the experiences of being a small tree kangaroo. And that is a kind of anthropological writing that I've never seen before. And it is a hugely stimulating piece of ethnographic writing. All right. Well, at that, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to cut us off and move on to the final segment, which is me. And what I've been thinking about this week is podcasting for teaching. We gave a seminar last week as The Familiar Strange, and we got up in front of some of our colleagues here at Australia National University in the anthropology department and talked about what we've been doing and things that we might want to do in the future. One of the things that was brought up was the possibility of using podcasts more as a teaching resource or as creating podcasts specifically for the purpose of teaching. One of our professors talked about what she feels is a general drift in teaching away from the written word and more towards kind of verbal auditory delivery of information. She was finding that her students, undergraduates, had less and less patience to read things. She would assign things, but less than ever. And it's not like undergraduates always read everything that they were assigned, but less than ever were undergrads willing to read stuff and that they were always looking for alternative ways to consume information, alternative ways to learn. And she wondered if maybe podcasting was one variety of way that we might do that. The quest, I mean, one of the real questions here is whether people are any more likely to learn from a five-minute piece of audio than they are from being in a lecture hall for five minutes or from reading a piece of peer-reviewed research anthropology, you know, what the advantages might be. Well, I guess in terms of attention span, like they say that you can't concentrate for more than 20 minutes at a time, like in terms of extended focus. Uh, 20 minutes is a lot for me. Okay. Well, you know, we're going with a 23-minute <laughs> podcast for these panel sessions And that might be full capacity for people, whereas lectures would be at least an hour. My students definitely look like they could kill me at the end of my two-hour lectures. (laughs) (laughs) Why do you suppose that is? Because I think no matter how fascinating the content is, it just gets boring. There's a kind of limited amount that you can hold your attention on one particular topic for. But at the same time, there is something to be said about just making people sit down with a good piece of writing and actually read it. The idea that you could consume everything through podcast or through some kind of audio manner to me seems like, I don't know, we're losing the kind of disciplinary nature of the university, that that whole crafting of students into... Into what? Into docile subjects who are willing <laughs> to read extremely long and turgid pieces of writing. But I, I don't think the suggestion is ever to replace writing with listening. If I'm starting to learn about a new concept, then my first port of call will always be to YouTube it. Listen to some of those explainers that are like one minute and then I'll do a three minute and then I'll do a 10 minute. And then after I've listened to that 14 minutes, then I'm ready to read. But I've been primed to know what to look for as important in the text. Isn't that interesting? Because I 
When I want to learn something new, the first thing I do is trying to find an encyclopedia entry. But that would still be a shortened version, right? In terms of getting like a bite size. Really what I want is to talk to somebody. My first port of call is really to have a conversation with somebody, but generally nobody will talk to me. So YouTube's my next best option. Isn't that sad? But have you guys used, no, I don't think that's sad. Have you guys used podcasts for learning? Like I quite often when I was trying to familiarise myself with philosophical stuff while I was writing my thesis, I would go to a Philosophy Bites episode, Yeah, definitely. which is quite short. I subscribe to a lot of academic podcasts, but I don't use them in that way. I use them for background. So you don't retain what you're learning necessarily? A little of it, but, you know, only a certain percentage because I'm not focused. My attention isn't focused in that way when I listen to podcasts. And it's quite different from the way that I read academic writing which I only do for a very specific purpose, which is to learn things. I don't read those things for pleasure. And I think one of the questions here is that role of pleasure, how important that is as a pedagogical thing. Is it important for everything that we use to teach and learn to be entertaining? One of the questions that you guys have brought up here with whether you go to an encyclopedia entry versus whether you go to YouTube has to do with a sort of idea about what knowledge is supposed to look like. You know, whether it's supposed to be dry and that's how you know that it's real knowledge or whether it's supposed to be entertainingly delivered, and that's how you know that it'll get into your brain. Is there a kind of credentialing that goes on in the sort of medium you use to get your knowledge? I think it depends on who you are. Like, I think for Simon, probably you wouldn't trust the kind of things that I get my initial information from, right? I do watch YouTube videos on language, but my favorite language YouTube channel has citations at the end of it. Like for me, I trust my own ability to weed out things that aren't For Legit. For shiz. Yeah. <laughs> on YouTube, that's a tall order to weed all that stuff out, isn't it? It's critical mass. So, I mean, if you start off with a one and then you go to three, then you go to 10 and then you go to a book... That's interesting, though, because one of the key elements of this is moving between media, Yeah. right? Not just YouTube, but YouTube, then a book. I was just going to say that, Ian, when you were describing how you don't listen to think necessarily, you have it as the background noise. And I know a lot of people that are like that or that listen to podcasts to get to sleep every night just to have something there. But I also know people, and I do this sometimes as well, well, they'll listen to the same episode three times over just so they know they got it. It's true, as you point out, like some people listen to something disposably and some people listen to something multiple times. We can't force people to listen in a particular way any more than we could force them to read in a particular way, which is one of the problems that this professor was talking about. She assigns things to read and people don't read them. I think that's always been the case. I I think Socrates probably wrote about that. (laughs) Well, listeners, if you think you have an idea of a way that you could use podcasting to teach anthropology in a way that'll stick, in a way that'll be useful in classrooms, if you have something you'd like to make that you'd like to run through The Familiar Strange, if you have an idea that you want to run by us, let us know. Tweet at us at TFS Tweets or write to us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com. And with that, I think we are out of time today. I'd like to thank my fellow familiar strangers, Jody Lee Trembaugh. Thanks, Ian. Simon Theobald. Thanks. And Julia Brown. Thank you. And I am Ian Pollock. Today's episode was produced by all of us at The Familiar Strange. Subscribe to The Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places. Tell your friends, your coworkers, your colleagues, your classmates. Leave us ratings, reviews. We love all that stuff. It helps people find the show and it helps us make the show better. To find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world, visit thefamiliarstrange.com. If you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com, tweet at TFS Tweets, or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Music by Pete Dabro. 
Special thanks to Nick Farrelly, Will Grant, and Maud Rowe, and to our interns, Alina Rizvi and Alyssa Asmolovskaya. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep talking strange. Woo!